Oi, man, and good morning. It's uh, so good to see you guys. If you, uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that. And turn with me to the book of James. It's at the very back of the Bible. If you don't have one, it's going to be on the screens. Uh, we're making our way through the book of James all fall, and we've made ourselves to James chapter 4. Now, one of the things, um, I think that this might be one of the, the most difficult messages in the book of James, and, and I thought about this a lot this week, and I'm like, man, these guys didn't have a whole lot of time to, to pepper their, their stuff with compliments, right? They, they just, between beatdowns and trying to save their lives, they had something to say. And they said it, and, and I hope that what you'll see today, it's like, kind of like grandma's old cough medicine, right? It goes down rough, but it gets the job done. And that's kind of what James is doing here today. It's going to go down a little rough, but it will get the job done if you can parse through the stuff, all right? Uh, and here's why we do this. Um, just so you know, we, we go through books of the Bible. We go verse by verse through them because, honestly, um, I just believe that God's Word can change your life. It, it changed my life. Hearing God's word, all of it, has, has transformed me little by little throughout, since I was 16 years old, the moment I came to faith and did not grow up in a Christian home, till I met my wife, until going into ministry, and uh, I'm a radically different person because of Jesus. And, and that's why I stand up here every week, and that's why we just talk through God's word, is because I want that for you. That's why we're going to do what we're going to do today, all right? In the 1830s, Great Britain fought what I think might be the dumbest war of all time, all right? Great Britain decided that they wanted to enter into a trade agreement with China because they wanted China's tea products. However, China didn't want anything from Great Britain, so they said, no bueno. Well, what do you do when you don't get your way? According to Great Britain, you just create a way. So here's what Great Britain did. They started smuggling opioids into China in order to get the Chinese people addicted to the drugs that they would start selling to China so that they can open up a free trade agreement. I kid you not, right? They, they had the supply and demand problem fixed. Well, obviously, the Chinese government didn't like this a whole lot, so they started to stop them using military force to not bring these drugs in. And you guys thought that Ronald Reagan started the war on drugs. Nope. Happened in China in the 1830s. So here's what happens. The Brits bring in the Royal Navy to force a free trade agreement with China in order to force them to allow them to bring 7,000 pounds of opioid into China via gunpoint, and it resulted in China giving up Hong Kong and five different ports to the British Empire. So if you didn't know, that's how China lost Hong Kong to the British Empire, and it resulted in what I think is one of the dumbest wars of all time, which is what most conflicts are. If you really think about it, most conflicts that we see are started over trivial matters, aren't they? Whether it be land, like land that we think is important, or language or cultural distinctives, most of the conflicts in human history don't start because of true injustice. They start over selfish ambition. Now let me just ask you, what about the conflicts in your own life? If you're anything like me, I get into a fight with my wife and about 45 minutes later, I don't even know why we started fighting in the first place. And, and that really gets me in trouble. She's like, do you even remember why we started arguing? I'm like, I stopped listening 10 minutes ago, I'm going to be honest with you. And it gets me in trouble. Because reality is, is most of the conflicts in our lives don't actually happen with true injustice. They happen because of selfish ambition and trivial matters. But here's something that we know. Conflict, conflict is a part of life. No matter, no matter where you are or who you are, there is going to always be conflict around you and inside of you. And what I want to show you today is where the source of that conflict comes from and how to actually deal with it at a heart level. That's what James chapter 4 is about. So again, if you have your Bible, jump in with me at verse 1. Here's what James says. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? All right, we have to stop right here just for a second, and I need to address what James is saying because this is going to be the most important thing you're going to get out of the whole message. James is going to lay out the argument that all of your conflict that you deal with, whether it be work conflict, relational conflict, marital conflict, it has nothing to do with what's going on out there. It has everything to do with what's going on in here. That's the whole point. What's going on inside of your heart? Is it not that there's passions at war within you? So James says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covenant, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Now listen, I, I, the scholars believe that James is being literal here. Now in the first century church, they were literally killing each other over stuff. They, they were fighting because what they wanted was at the source of every single war and every single conflict is the same. You desire something so badly that you take it. I mean, is that not what happens? Right, literally every war that's ever been started has its roots there. And here's what I love about the church. The church is a place that brings people together that have absolutely nothing in common. We, we have people from different backgrounds. In the first gathering, I was, I was looking out at the crowd. There was literally somebody sitting from Australia, from South Africa, and from Nigeria, a couple seats away from one another. And we all come into this room because we are gathered under the name of Jesus. The thing that brought us together would never, is Jesus, and we would never spend any time together if it wasn't for that. Churches are filled with people who have different political opinions. Whether or not they tell you or not, there are people who have massively different political opinions in this room, and if you knew what they were, they would probably fight with you out there, and yet we are in this place because we are united under something bigger. People from different backgrounds, people from different worldviews, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds that would never spend time together outside or shop in the same places come together because of Jesus. And that's what makes the church absolutely beautiful and really hard. By the way, by the way, we are all in a maturation process. You know what that means? That means contrary to your, in my popular belief, you haven't arrived yet which means that you are dealing with stuff and God is working in you too. So there's something going on inside of every single one of us at the same time that God is building together and it's messy. Now think about what the first century church would have looked like. Remember this, James, James writes this book. It's the earliest written book in the New Testament and he's writing this to the church who is scattered throughout the world. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he, he is the bishop at the church in Jerusalem, the very first church, and these brothers are scattered all over the world, and they're brought together because of Jesus. So these would have been social outcasts and Jewish elites. Now think about it. They're in the same room, and the reason why they're social outcasts is because of the Jewish elites, right? So they're sitting down together. These would have been Roman citizens who had family that probably participated in your refugee status. These were people jockeying for position, religious zealots that scholars would tell you were killing people and destroying churches because they wanted to get their own way. All of these people are sitting in church together, and James looks at them and he says, what's causing these fights among you? They're not trivial. They're, they're a big deal because there's deep hurts that will divide the church. Now watch this though. But James's point is, of all people, of all people, you should be different because you're people that understand amazing grace. See, if you understand the gospel at its roots, James is like, man, don't you understand that Jesus died in your place and that none of you sitting in this room sits here because you deserve anything, but because the undeserved grace of Jesus in your place. So you should be people of all people that give amazing grace because that's at the heart of the gospel. When you come into the church, you're not enemies anymore, you are family. 
united under the blood of Jesus. Like, like, yes, of course, James is like, there's crazy uncles in the room. We got that. And if you don't know who they are, it might be you. There, there are people in here with all kinds of different beliefs that, that, that would divide us out there. There are, liter- there are cat people in the room. I, we don't get it, but, but they're here, and we love them anyway. The point is this, is the church would fill with people like me, sinners. People who have received amazing grace. And that should unify us, but it doesn't always work out that easily. And here's why, because the conflict isn't out there. The conflict is inside of here. Now here's the deal. Anytime we talk about conflict, here's what we end up doing. We end up, majority of the time, talking about conflict resolution, and we talk about symptoms and not really the root of the problem. So like when you go to counseling, and I'm, I'm a big fan of counseling, but when you go to counseling, what we tend to do is we spend most of our time giving each other tools for conflict resolution, right, to avoid being a jerk. So, so and that's really helpful stuff. Like we need those tools in our tool bag for our relationships. I'm all for that. And as a matter of fact, I want to give you a couple. So since, since it's a tough sermon, I want to give you four things that my wife and I that have revolutionized our marriage over the past 11 years that I think are the best pieces of advice I could give you. So if you're newly married or you're getting married like Michael, this is free. Here you go. Here's number one. Number one is this. Always give the benefit of the doubt. Always give the benefit of the doubt and assume the best of others. You know why I say that? Because it's not natural that any of us do that. If the conflict is really inside of me, well, my selfish ambitions are that I, I naturally revert to assuming the worst of you. I promise you, that's what I do, is I, I, I project onto you what I feel. So here's what me and my wife do, and it might sound weird, but you ask clarifying questions. Hey, I heard you say this, here's what it sounded like, is that what you meant? But you know what ends up to happen? Nine times out of ten, I'm wrong. And, and, and I look at my wife, and I'm like, that's not at all what I meant to say. And I'm really sorry that I said it that way. Here's actually what I meant. Clarifying questions actually help you to give the benefit of the doubt. Number two is this. We have a list of words and phrases that are off limits. Here's what this means. For about, we've been married for about 11 years, and I think a little over. Um, for about the first six years, we studied each other. You know what I'm saying? Like you study one another, you get to know each other, so that whenever we get into an argument, like I go straight for the jugular. And that's what we do. So, so we say words that wound each other deeply because we know what gets underneath our skin. So what we did is one day we went to dinner with a list of those words. And it's like, man, well, my wife looks at me and she says, hey, you're acting just like your dad. That hurts. So I told her. And we, I said, here's what you say that hurts me. And she's like, here's what you say that hurts me. We talked about them. We switched lists. We signed a covenant with one another saying we'd never do that again. We took a bunch of words that are off limits and we said we're just not going to do that. You know how much conflict has been avoided by simply not trying to wound each other whenever we're hurting? Number three is this. We never use absolutes. Which, by the way, that's an absolute statement. And that's another absolute statement. So we can go on and on and on. You know, you know what I'm saying? Here, here's, here's what I mean. You never do that. You're always a jerk, right? You, you never take out the trash. Most of the time that's not true. And it's offensive. And it doesn't honor one another. So we took absolute statements out of our vocabulary. We do true statements. Here's the last one. We have decided our rules of engagement mean that we will respect one another's space when needed. Here, here's what I mean. If you're like me, uh, I am like, let's put on the boxing gloves, let's duke it out, let's get it done, and let's move on. My wife is like, I need some time. All right, we'll box later, give me some time. Uh, Here's one thing that we've decided to help one another. I want to talk, she wants time, so what she's supposed to do is she's supposed to say, hey, I need time, I need an hour, specific amount of time. 
and I will come back, and it's her job to re-engage. So it's my job to give respect in that moment. It's her job to take some time and honor the time by re-engaging in the conversation when that time comes, whether it be an hour or two hours or whatever. Those things have revolutionized our marriage. Giving the benefit of the doubt, not cutting each other deeply with our words, never using absolutes, and respecting one another's space on both ends. And y'all, there are great tools. And these tools, I'm just telling you, they will help your conversations and they'll help your, your conflict. Now, again, like, here's another one. Just when, when you can cut the tension with a butter knife, just don't have the conversation. Or when she's holding a knife in general, just... See, counseling is a great thing, and I'm a big fan. Like, I actually think counseling should be proactive more than reactive. Like, it's okay. Like, when you need some reactive counseling, go get it. But my wife and I, we just do continual proactive counseling because we know that we're both jacked up and we need it. Yeah, counseling is great, but at the end of the day, conflict is not about having good tools and bad tools. Conflict goes deeper. It's about what James is getting after. So write it down. Divisions start inside of your own heart. So if you want to fix conflict, you have to work on your heart, not your relationships. You start there. Jesus says the same exact thing. Jesus says, stop worrying about the little tiny speck in your brother's eye and take care of that big old log in your own eye. And then you can go work on the other stuff. Now read it again with that in mind. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Are you starting to see it again? The things that cause conflicts are inside of you. It's selfish ambition. It's pride in your own life. So when we look to someone else, we, we miss the point. Now take note of this. There's two words in this. If you keep this on the screen, that if you underline words, are really important. The first one is that word passions. It's the Greek word hedonon, which is where we get the word hedonism from. Uh, it, it, it's, it's this idea that, that we value pleasure as the highest good of anything. And y'all, we live in a pleasure-rich society. Again, I, I, listen, hedonism, hey, here's what it looks like, and I, I know this can offend people, but it is what it is. Like, We've taught our kids. We've taught our kids that you should value your identity over anything. So just be whatever you want. You know, that all sounds good until it doesn't work, and then they're crushed under the weight of the fact that reality sets in. It's just not how the world works. We give everyone a dang participation trophy and a snack. I got four kids. Do you know how much money I've spent on snacks after games? Like, I'm just telling you, the gummy worms and the Gatorades that they're getting aren't helping them anyway. So yesterday, I'm at one of my kids' lacrosse games, and um, we're, we're getting the beat down, and the goalies are doing an incredible job, and the goalie got the game ball, and one of the girls looks at me, and she's like, I thought everybody's supposed to get a game ball, and she's already gotten one. I'm like, where are we? Did you not just watch her? She saved us from getting beat by 40, right? Churches have built an entire industry off the prosperity gospel. And y'all, the prosperity gospel has ruined more lives than just about anything, because here's what it tells you. If you'd have just prayed harder, if you'd have given more, if you'd have done more, then God would have heard your prayers and he'd have healed you. Y'all, that sounds good until it just doesn't work. I've done enough funerals over the years to realize that that ruins a lot of lives because it's more complex than that. See, people aren't getting married and having intimacy because, honestly, they'd rather look at the person on the computer screen than the real person laying next to them at bed. 
You can go on and on and on. Debt is at an all-time high because we numb ourselves from the reality. If you look at it, as far as history goes, we are the most prosperous people of all time. We have more money, more health care, more food, more healthy food, more connectivity, more opportunities than we've ever had before, more pleasures than ever before, and yet we are the most depressed people and the most medicated people of all time. We don't know how to deal with disappointment and suffering, and we expect everything to work out, and we are absolutely crushed when it doesn't. Super encouraging sermon, isn't it? Listen, I know this is hard, but I tell you that because I need you to hear me say pleasure is not the answer. It's not. And, and, and at the same time, let me balance this. If you've ever had a pastor look, up, you look at you and tell you, like, don't sin because it's not fun, they, they ain't doing it right. All right? It is fun. We know that. There's a dopamine high that you hit every single time, and that's why we love it, and that's why Satan uses it. The problem is not that it's not fun or not satisfying in the moment. The problem is that it creates a downward spiral of dependence and ultimately it ends up killing you. Listen, poverty is not Satan's tool to destroy your life. Prosperity is. See, prosperity makes you believe that the world is good and you have everything you need until you need a little more. And then when you need a little more, what you're going to do is you're going to end up standing, uh, you're going to take the person standing in front of you for a little more, and you're going to get your stuff, and you're going to run all over the relationships to get them. And that's the point. The big idea that James is about to get after is that there is a war going on inside of you, and if you don't fight that war first, there's going to be collateral damage of casualties all around you. Because here's how it works. The conflict, it rages inside of you. And, And like Jesus said, what's in your heart will end up coming out of your mouth, and you'll end up hurting the people around you because hurt people hurt people. So that's the word passions. Take note of the next word, desire. The word desire means to literally lust after. James is saying that there's a deep pleasure that's so strong that we literally lust after it. Y'all, I'm telling you, this is a big deal, and you need to be aware of it because we live in a pleasure-rich society, right? Every single marketing campaign is, to, is designed to play on this, need, on this need for pleasure and this desire to lust after something because they know if they can get you hooked on it, you'll want it so badly that you'll do anything to get it. Like this morning, I walked in and this dude had some dope Nikes on. And I was like, where do you get those from? He told me the app and I shamelessly, I'm going to go probably look for them because that's what Nike does. It's a desire. It's a desire that gets so strong that you need it so badly. You remember a couple weeks ago, I shared with you, James uses that word desire. It's the Greek word epitomia. Hey, you should remember this word because it's probably, Tim Keller says it's the most important word in the entire Bible. Epitomia literally means an epic desire. Here's the point, and, and James is getting after this. It's not that the root or the essence of all sin is not bad things. It's wanting things too badly. It's taking good things and lusting after them to the point in which you have to have it. That craving is so strong that you take the good thing and you, be, you make it an epic desire. That's the point, right? Good, like idols. Idols tend not to be bad things. They tend to be really good things that you desire so much that they become ultimate things and then they become the God that you worship. I, I would be willing to bet none of you have a little Buddha sitting in your house. Like That's not what the idols look like. The idol might be the nice car that you want or living vicariously through your kids so you give yourself to every travel sport that there is. And look, I'm not knocking, I have four kids and I love sports. I played sports my entire life. But it's the desire that becomes so much that you give everything that you have to it that becomes an epitomia. And that's where James says you're in trouble, you're hooked. 
you're hooked to the point to where you have to have those things and it ends up wrecking your life. Church, I need you to get this. Most things that you and I get angry about, you have to ask yourself the question, why am I so mad? Is it because there's a true injustice or is it because, because I want something too badly? Let me, let me give you an example. I'm about to step on your toes. The epitomia that I've seen in our society over the last couple years that was drawn out through the pandemic has, honestly, I think it's the desire for freedom has become so strong in all of our lives that it's become an epic desire. And what ends up happening is when you have an epitomia like freedom, a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, you can no longer hear each other. You can no longer see each other. You can no longer have conversation with each other, right? Whether or not you like masks or you don't like masks or this or that or whatever. Whatever the case might be, you end up running over each other and you stop sacrificing for one another and you stop loving your neighbor as yourself because your epitomia has divided you. James is saying that is the root of all conflict. You want something so badly that it becomes the ultimate thing in your life and then you end up wrecking the people around you because there's something going on deep inside of you. You're starting to get it? See what he says? You, ask, you do not have... Because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, now again, this is, this is really important. See, James doesn't have a ton of time to like salt his words with compliments. So you're getting, getting like the, right, the unsalted chicken. It doesn't taste real good, but it gets the job done. Here's what he's saying. When you have an epitomia in your life, an epic desire for something that you want so badly, what you'll end up doing is you'll end up praying that God would provide it for you. God, I don't like my wife. Please give me a new one. You know what God doesn't do? He doesn't answer that question. He never gives you that. And so what you end up doing, watch this, is you end up stop praying because he doesn't answer those prayers. And then you end up falling deeper and deeper and deeper into isolation. Like the, 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 uh, the counselor David Palson used to say, mutant things always grow in secret gardens. So you become mutant. And James is saying what ends up happening is when God doesn't answer your prayers because they, he knows that they will ultimately hurt you, what you do is you start isolating yourself even from God. You do not have because you do not ask. And even when you do ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on yourself. Now look at the contrast that Jesus says in Luke chapter 11. Jesus says this, and, and I tell you, ask. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, Jesus says, if his son asks for a fish, would instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now watch this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you what you ask for? No. That's not what he says. He says, we'll give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him. It's subtle, but watch this. God doesn't give you your desires when you ask for them. He gives you more of himself. And as he gives you more of himself, he actually changes your desires. And as he changes your desires and you pray, you actually pray the will or the desires of God. Now watch this. This is why this is so important. It's not a one-for-one, one, but watch. When God answers your prayers, normally it's because he put his spirit inside of you and you're actually praying for things that align with God's will. So one of the greatest ways to know if this conflict is still going on inside of you is when was the last time God answered your prayers? Now again, I, I need to be careful here because it's not a one-to-one. Y'all, one of the hardest days that I've had in a long time was yesterday. 
sitting at my daughter's lacrosse game at 10 o'clock, and Ashley calls me, um, who's one of my best friend's wives. And she says, Mark is, um, Mark's probably not going to make it through the day. He's dying of cancer. Mark officiated my wedding. He's been a mentor through my life. And I got in the car and drove four and a half hours down there and just cried, took his high school kids to dinner, held him, watched my friend dying in front of me. And we've prayed hard for him, hard. And God's not answering those prayers. And listen to me. It's in those moments that you have to remember the goodness and the character of your God, and you have to apply the principle of assuming the best of him too. Sometimes God allows you to suffer because he knows better than you do what he wants to do. I mean, just make it trivial. Sometimes my kids ask me for some really dumb things. You know what I'm saying? Like my daughter, my, my nine-year-old might be like, Dad, I need to blow dry my hair. I might as well do it in the bathtub as I'm washing my body. No, you're not going to do that. I know it sounds efficient, but you're not. And she doesn't see the train wreck coming, right? But my job as her dad is to stop the train wreck that I can see four steps ahead that she'll never be able to see, and she feels the injustice of that. A good father that we have in heaven knows what we need, and what he also knows is that Mark is just one veil away from a new body. And I'll never be able to understand it. Neither will you. And one day what I'll do is I'll stand around the throne room of God watching him with a cancer-free body and we will talk about it and it will all make sense. Like J.R. Tolkien said, one day God is going to make all the sad things become untrue. But until that day, I go back to what I know about the character of God and I know that he died in my place. He rose from the dead to give me new life and he loved me so much that he stepped off of his throne in heaven to live my perfect life and die my death. And until that day, what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust him when none of it makes sense. That's one side. And now balance that tension with oftentimes God does answer your prayers when your will aligns with his. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why do I pray what I pray? Here, here it is. I mean, it's so simple. Your motives matter. Do you pray to ultimately get something from God or do you pray to get God? Because at the end of the day, that's what prayer does. It aligns you in a relationship with your father. Again, here, let me ask you this way. At the end of the day, the question is, are your prayers transactional or relational? Transactional reveals something in your heart, doesn't it? James is saying that when our lives are centered around an epic desire to have our pleasures met, we either stop praying altogether or we use God to get whatever we want. And God doesn't answer those prayers. So a little more unseasoned chicken from James. Here you go, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or war with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Like, dang, James, chill out, right? We just didn't get to know each other. Here's what he's saying. When your ultimate desires are found in the pleasures of this world, watch this. This is, this is so important. You're cheating on God. That's James's point. Let, let me explain. When God created you, when God created you and I, he didn't need anything from us. God functions in this thing called a trinity. It's three persons, one God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Always eternally existing, always in relationship, always a self-sustaining love. Which means that God didn't need anything from you when he created you. He created you to share in the abundance of that love and that joy. And that's important because you were created to be in continual relationship with your creator. Right? The Westminster Confession. What's the chief end of man? To, enjoy, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you were created. And that's why you want things so badly. Like you want to be fulfilled. And the problem is, is nothing in this world will ever fulfill that. Like C.S. Lewis said, 
If I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Right? You were made for another. And the problem is, is you'll continue to try to fill that void, that, that God-shaped hole in your life with stuff, and they might work for a little bit, but it will leave you continually unsatisfied. And Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Here's the point. You cannot serve two masters. If you try to live with one foot here and one foot here, God is saying, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. By the way, that word cosmos here, the word, the word world, it's, it's cosmos. It's not like the world. You get this, right? Like the world, the thing we live on, the globe, we should love. God created it. God's going to restore it. Heaven's going to be here on earth. You should take care of it. That's why Christians should be the greatest environmentalists ever. Like we, we love this world. He's talking about the world's systems. That's, that's actually what the Greek word means. Here, here let, me, let me tell you the world's systems. Right, the world's systems are those that say you deserve it, so you should pursue it. Right? You ever heard this? Right? Like, don't, you should guard your individuality and your ultimate freedom. You be you. Don't let anybody ever tell you to be anything else. James is saying that the world's systems can't be in love with God because the world's systems and God are at war with each other. So if you love the world's systems, you're going to be at war with God. Jesus came to destroy the systems of this world. He came to build a new kingdom, a different kingdom, a better kingdom. Like I told you last week, you're either bringing God's kingdom down or you're bringing Satan's kingdom up. There is no third option. So let's drill down on this a little more. You see what James is saying? I want you to get the logical point. He begins by saying the war is not out there. That, that's so important. The war's in here. Now watch this. He actually goes a little deeper. The war is actually between you and God. If you love the world, you're at war with God, he says. Right? Did you not know that enmity with God is to be in love with the world? See, how, see where he's going with this? Our ultimate problem, our ultimate problem is between us and God. Now watch this. This is so important. He's not actually talking to unbelievers. He's talking to the church. See, it's one thing to say, of course, like you guys out there, like we, we like to do that blame shifting stuff. But what he's saying is, church, this is for you. When you, love, when you love stuff more than you love God, when you love the pleasures going on around you more than you love God, then there's a problem. And by the way, let me just tell you, God doesn't want you not to love pleasure. He created pleasure, right? He just says that when it's your ultimate desire, you've missed the point. And it, it destroys the relationships and it destroys the king of the universe's relationship with you. So verse 5, or do you suppose... It is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. <laughs> Listen, God's not jealous of you. He is jealous for you. You know there's a difference there? Let me explain it. I am jealous for my wife. Man, I love my wife. I love my wife so much. She is beautiful on the inside and outside. She's a fantastic mom. She's a great partner. She's my best friend. When we got married 11 years ago and I said I do, I didn't stop pursuing her. I pursue her more and more every day. And the longer we're married, the more in love with her I am. And if you don't believe me, come try her and see if I don't just Chuck Norris roundhouse kick you right in the throat. You know why that's important and why it's a little offensive? Because that's how God feels about you. He's jealous for you. He will fight for you. He put a down payment on your life by fighting evil in your place. 
<laughs> like a good husband, you better believe that if you ever come at my wife, I'm coming at you. You better believe that if Satan ever comes at you, or if evil ever comes at you, you have a God that's jealous for you. He's not sitting back on the sidelines being like, yeah, have at it. No, God is jealous for you and he loves you. Like a kid who, who's jealous for the love of their parents, who just wants it. That's how God is for you. And James is saying that he has put his spirit inside of you and he is jealous for you. And even if you choose to walk away from God at times, he continues to pursue you. There's a, there's a story in the Old Testament about a prophet named Hosea. And God tells Hosea, I want you to go get this wife, and her name is Gomer. There's two problems with this. Number one is Gomer is the worst name ever. Right? I don't know anybody that's like, we ought to name our kid Gomer. And she's a prostitute. Imagine, imagine being a prophet who has had a clean life, and God looks at you and he says, I want you to go take her that nobody else wants, but everybody's used. So he does. He does. He listens to God, and he goes and takes her, and gets married, and they have a house together and a family together, and then she goes back into prostitution, and, and God says, go get her again. I want you to relentlessly pursue her, and I want you to change her life, and I want you to sacrificially love and serve her because it's a picture of what I'm going to do for you. See, we like to be the hero of the story. Bad news in the story, you're Gomer. Jesus is Hosea. That's how God feels about you relentlessly pursuing you. And James is like, don't you get it? The spirit that he has put inside of you, he's done that because he loves you. Like, do you know what happens when you get married? When you get married, you don't just sign a legal document. What happens is something spiritually changes inside of you where you actually become a new being. You become one flesh according to scripture, right? When you get the spirit of God inside of you, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new being, a one flesh with the God of the universe who lives inside of you, who knows you better than you even know yourself, who is changing you from the inside out. You belong to God. And God is saying, I'm jealous for you. I want you. I want you. So you were saying, the spirit of the living God lives inside of you and it doesn't really matter what you've done in your past. You realize this. God knows that. And he still chose you before the foundation of the earth. It doesn't really matter what you're going to do in your future. He knows that and he's running relentlessly to you and pursuing you. So stop feeling shame and come back home. Right? Stop living in guilt because the Father is ready to receive you. Stop holding yourself back. You got married to another, a good husband. The God of the universe who will change you and cherish you and love you and pursue you. So here it is, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, that condemnation is not waiting on you when you come back to the Father. Grace is. Do you realize that there is more grace in God than sin in you? You cannot out-sin God's grace. All you have to do is humble yourself to come back. The story of the prodigal son, right? When the prodigal son finally turns around to come back home. Do you know what he sees? He doesn't see, God. He doesn't see his father on the couch mad at him, grumbling. What does he see? He sees the, the father of his youth relentlessly pursuing him to the point in which I love this. Tim Keller says it shouldn't even be called the prodigal son. It should be called the prodigal God because the God is the one who relentlessly and recklessly pursues us. James is saying, hey, when you get this, it's not really that harsh what James is saying. James is saying that God loves you and he wants you to realize everything that he has done to have you. Like James watched his half-brother Jesus, 
who he didn't actually believe in until he died, watch his half-brother Jesus give up his life to be in relationship with you, to be beaten, to be hung on a cross. And James is looking at you saying, don't you get it? Don't you get it? The undeserved grace of our God who wants you, who pursues you, who wants to be in relationship with you. See, you want to know how to deal with conflict? You have to go back home. So until you fix what's in here, all that will go out there. There will always be conflict around you. So God created you to be in this unconditional, loving relationship with him. And when, when you are satisfied in him, what you find is every good pleasure comes from him anyway. So all the counterfeits of this world, all they'll make you do is keep, it's like salt water that makes you still more thirsty and never quenches your thirst. And God is saying, I want to quench your thirst. I want to change you. So humble yourself and come back home because I have more grace than you have sin. Verse 7, here's how you do it. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, watch this. Write this down. The way you end the war going on inside of you is you run to God and you run from the devil. Right? Submitting to God is running back home, isn't it? It's, it's giving your heart and allowing the passions of your life to be filled with the giver of every good gift. And then resisting the devil means, well, he will attack you for a little bit. But then eventually, he's going to leave you alone. He will flee from you. That's a command and a promise because you don't belong to him. You were bought at a price and you belong to Jesus. So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. All you have to do is draw near to God because he jealously longs for you and he's already pursuing you. He will draw near to you. I heard this recently. I thought this was good. Every Christian should know two things better than anybody in the world. You should know the back of Satan as he's running from you and the face of God as you run towards him. Those should be the two things you know better than anything. And I'm just telling you, if you will do that, he will satisfy you in the deepest of ways. That's where contentment comes from. And when you're content in God, you can enjoy the things of this world. When you're satisfied in God, you enjoy one another. You know, after several years of doing this, um, I always, at every wedding that I ever do, I, I, I give this piece of advice. I say, you know, the reason why most people get divorced is not because they stop loving each other. It's because they love each other too much. And you're like, what is he talking about? The epitomia. See, what ends up happening is you look to your spouse to be your functional God. You idolize them. They had to be perfect. You put your greatest desires on them, and what they end up happening is they get crushed underneath the weight of those desires because they're never meant to fulfill you. So every time you look to your spouse to fulfill you, 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 create, you create distance from them because they never satisfy you, and then you end up distancing yourself to a point in which you fall out of love with one another. Here, here's the point. This is, this, I'm telling you, if you will fall in love with Jesus, then you can enjoy your spouse because you're fulfilled in him, and then you enjoy one another. If you don't, you'll lose both. If you put first things first, you get everything. That's what C.S. Lewis says. If you, t if you pursue second things, you lose the second things and the first things too. The reason why most of us fall out of love with one another is because we have an epitomia. We have an unhealthy relationship with one another because we're not pursuing God ultimately. We actually try to find in our spouse what we're actually meant to find in God. So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's what it looks like. Here's how you do it. Cleanse your hands. Now, you gotta kind of parse through the harsh, lang harsh language. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's what he's doing. James is using a Hebrew literary device called couplets in order to make a point. The first point is, right, draw near to God. 
run away from Satan. The second point is this. Watch the way you act or live and cleanse your heart. Those are the two ones, right? Cleanse your hands. If you will, that's external. That's what you do with your hands. All right? Here, here's what he's saying. Your actions matter. The, the way that you draw near to God is to, one, change your actions. What you do matters, right? Every habit book you've ever read will tell you that. If you change your habits, it normally changes your actions. You, you hang out with different people. You have different results, okay? So what he says is if you fill your mind with stuff all the time that's not good, it tends to change your actions. But if you fill your mind with purity and good speech and good language, well, you're cleansing your hands, See, external actions of our lives have a, have a powerful impact on how we, how we draw near to God. It creates healthier rhythms. Then, he says, then purify your heart. You double-minded. Double-minded literally means two-souled. Here's what he's saying is when you, when you pursue things in the world and you pursue things in God, you're actually a disintegrated soul, right? You have a soul in both worlds. So he says, have a pure heart. Do you know how you have a pure heart? Watch this. This is the literary device. Draw near to God. See how it's full circle? Just spend time with God. Just as if when you spend time with the people around you, they have an influence on your life. If you spend time with God, it actually has an influence on your life. He changes you as you, as you read his word, as you fall in love and you dialect with him, as you date God, if you will, and pray to him and pursue him. He will change your heart. He will purify you from the inside out. The best weapon you have for a pure heart is God himself. Then the last statement, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now don't miss this. God is the author and perfecter of all joy. John 10.10, he wants you to have the abundant life. James is not saying don't be happy. Here's what he's saying. Are you ever broken or weep over your sin? Do you ever weep? Are you ever broken over your sin? So that's the thing, right? There needs to come a time in all of our lives when we're broken over the sin that has destroyed this world, sin that has caused our perfect king to be killed in our place. Does it ever grieve you that Jesus had to die for us? Yes, he wanted to die for us. He loved us. He, he had you in mind before the foundation of the world, but he had to do it because of us. Does the sin ever break your heart that it divides families, harms environments, right? It, it makes work difficult. It grieved God. Y'all, yesterday, sitting next to my friend who, whose body is utterly destroyed, and I'm sitting there crying next to him, holding his hand. And it grieves my heart that the sin, the condition of this world has broken it so much that cancer is a real thing. And I've watched too many friends die. And I'm just telling you, it grieves God's heart too. That's why he's going to fix it. But James is saying before you can have joy, you need to be broken over the sin that has broken this world. See, the end of the story is though, that we have a Philippians 2 God. You know Philippians 2, the, the great Christological hymn that God humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. And because he humbled himself, God will highly exalt him. That's the same formula for the Christian life. If you will humble yourself, God will exalt you. And I told you this last week, the word humility in the Bible is never a noun, ever. It's always a verb. You're not a humble person, you humble yourself. 
It's an action. It's what you do. If you will humble yourself, if you will grieve over that, watch this joy will come in the morning. In the morning, You won't have inner conflict anymore, but you'll have peace. You, you won't long for war that is within you. You will have a family around you that you'll be united with. The gospel is the greatest news ever, but it has to start with the bad news that the gospel had to take place because the sin of this world has corrupted the world, and yet we have a God who's so amazing. So amazing. Now, before you and I were sinners, before you and I did anything good or bad, Christ died for us. You ever notice that James starts off this whole section by saying, you, 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 you. But then he ends by saying, God. See, it's amazing. The solution isn't you, it's God. It's stepping off of your throne and submitting to God's throne that changes you. It's taking you off the top and submitting yourself underneath God that changes you. City Church, you have the spirit of the living God inside of you. The deposit of the king of the universe that doesn't just say he died for you so one day you go to heaven. He says he's bringing heaven down and he's living inside of you so that you can actually have joy and the abundant life now. And maybe, just maybe, the amount of conflict that we deal with on the inside is because we haven't reconciled the fact that God has already freed us. It's like, I told a friend this a couple years ago, it's like you live in a prison cell and the door is wide open. All you have to do is walk out. All you have to do is walk out. Let me tell you why all this matters. Because you matter. And because relationships matter. And because this world is falling apart in pursuit of fulfillment that's only found in Jesus. And God is looking at you saying, I've already given you this gift. And I want you to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then I want you to worship me. And then I want you to go send that to your neighbors, to your friends. I want you to belong and I want you to be sent. I want you to balance in your life because I'm going to use you to change the world. It's the greatest, greatest gift imaginable. And listen, y'all, I don't say this to guilt you, but life is short. It is. And I want, I told my friend this yesterday. I'd rather have a short life that's worth living than a long life that's wasted. And he had a short life that's worth living. I want that for you. Not a short life worth living. I want you to have a long life worth living. I really do. But I want you to have a life worth living. And he offers that. You want to deal with what's going on inside of your heart? James tells you how. It's through Jesus. I'm telling you. After 15 years of being a pastor, it's the only message I have. God wants to change your heart. And all you have to do is submit. Open hands. Stop living like this. And live like this. Father, I pray for my dear friends that have taken their time to come into this room when they could have been doing anything else in the world, that sits under your word as hard as it is, that pierces bone and marrow and It's hard to receive, but yet changes us. I pray that we would receive it. I pray that you would change us, that you would give us goodness and love and grace. I pray that you would give us your spirit. God, help us to die to ourselves, to humble ourselves, so that you will exalt us, use us, change us, and give us joy. I pray it all in Jesus' name.